0: 28. Isaiah 28. You can keep our church in prayer, certainly. Uh, you can take a look around and see there's a lot of people not here. Starting last night, we started getting text messages of just about the number of people who, who are sick uh, with all kinds of different things. So, that flu bug that's going around or whatever it is. So, best for them to stay away and kind of give us the blessing of them not being here for that reason today. Um, but certainly, um, as a few of us were before the service, we want to keep the church in prayer for uh, physical health this winter as well. So we need a nice, I was telling somebody before the service, we need like frigidly cold Minnesota temperatures. Wouldn't that be good? Kill off some of this stuff? Well, Gordon says no, but that's okay. <laughs> well, we are walking together through the book of Isaiah, and and one of the great things about the book of Isaiah is that Isaiah, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, takes time to kind of paint for us a composite picture of Jesus Christ. And what I mean by that is there's no one passage in Isaiah that we can go to that gives us a full picture of Jesus. But there's a whole bunch that we can go to and kind of link those together to get the full picture. So last week, that both Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9 have prophecies about the birth of Jesus Christ. Certainly, Isaiah chapter 53, uh, that we'll get to in a couple of months, um, certainly gives us a picture of the death of Jesus Christ. But in between those early chapters of Isaiah and near the end of Isaiah, we also have other passages of Scripture that just serve as simple reminders for us of who Jesus is and, and what he is to be in our lives. Here in Isaiah chapter 28 this morning, it's one verse that does that for us. It's verse 16. Now if you're thinking to yourself, well how long could he possibly go if it's just one verse? No, this one verse from Isaiah, alright? So we're going to use this and we're going to use this as a launching pad. We'll start here, we'll end here, but we're going to look at some other passages as well. Alright? So here we go. Isaiah chapter 28 verse 16 begins with the word, therefore. Now you've probably heard this before. I know I used to say it more often, but you've probably heard it elsewhere, too. In the Bible, when you get to the word, therefore, you are to ask yourself the question, what is that therefore? Right, how many have heard that before? All right, how many just heard it? Okay. how many didn't raise your hand either time, because you're already asleep? Okay. my own son, that's awesome, very nice, (laughs) great. Great. Maybe we need to get rid of the comfy chairs and bring back the pews, you know? So we have to ask ourselves, okay, even before we go any further in verse 16, whatever God is about to say is for a reason, for a specific reason. Now, we can read real briefly verse 16, and then we'll go and look back at the reason. Verse 16 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, whoever believes will not act hastily. So we've heard that verse before probably if you've been around church. That's, that's an often quoted verse from Isaiah. And we could even know, and some of you could probably even come up and preach the sermon about how this verse points us to Christ And as we'll see this morning, in more than one way. But why is it that all the way, hundreds of years after the founding of the nation, that God is having to speak through the prophet Isaiah and talk about having to lay a foundation at all? Wouldn't the foundation already be in place? Wouldn't the cornerstone already be set up? And that's where we get to that word, therefore. Because there's something going on in Isaiah's day. And remember, he has a long ministry that sees four kings come and go. Very long ministry. And so there's something going on in his day that causes God to step in and talk about this foundation that's coming, this cornerstone that is going to be set up. And we don't have to look very far in Isaiah 28 to find out what the two issues here were. So look at Isaiah 28, verse 1, and we'll see them right off the bat. In Isaiah chapter 28, verse 1, we have two things going on. First, it says, woe to the crown of pride. Is pride a sin? Absolutely. Pride is an issue that's going on in their land. And they're wearing it, do you see it there? They're wearing it like a crown. They have no problem being proud. They have no problem living life that way, looking down on other people and carrying themselves in that way. And then when we add the second problem to it, it's also right there in verse 1. It says in uh, 28.1, Woe to the crown of pride. And then it says to the drunkards of Ephraim. Ephraim is just another word for Israel. So we have two issues. We have pride, and we have substance abuse. Or, or sometimes, it's, it's called, we have alcoholism. But let's call it what the Bible calls it. It's drunkenness. That's what he says here. It's, it's being a drunkard. And when you have somebody, you know, you have both of those things that are running rampant in a society, it's no wonder then, that even before we know who exactly is proud and who exactly has, has the, uh, is, is acting out in drunkenness, no wonder God steps in and says, okay, let's talk about a foundation. Let's talk about a cornerstone. Let, let me tell you about what should be in place, and what is one day going to be in place. Now, jump down a little bit in the chapter with me and you'll see in verse 7 that sadly the people who are primarily involved in drunkenness, look at verse 7 of the same chapter, it says, but they also have erred through wine and through intoxicating drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They are swallowed up by wine. They are out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. For all tables are full of vomit and filth. Yikes. No place is clean. Do You see the people who are involved in drunkenness? It's probably more than them, but the ones that God is targeting are the prophets and the priests. The, the two groups of people that you're supposed to be able to go to in Isaiah's day for godly counsel and godly wisdom. But when you call them on the phone, you get the sneaking sensation that they're a little tipsy. Or if you go to meet with them and you walk in and you say, I know I don't have an appointment, but but you know I need to talk to you about something. And they're tripping over themselves because they're drunk. Or, as it says here, they're puking all over the tables. Not a nice picture. And it's not supposed to be like that. It's not supposed to be that the people who you go to for spiritual guidance and direction you're running the risk of them being buzzed or drunk or sloshed or what I don't know I even know what the words are today for it but whatever words are today for being drunk it's that blasted I don't know what do they say today for drunk people Oh I don't know You're 19 you're, you're 19 yes I thought you might know, that's all. I was actually looking at Gloria, to be honest with you, but um, that's a problem. It's one of the reasons why I believe that um, those in the ministry should stay away from alcohol. Because I don't know when I'm going to get a phone call um, that somebody's needing help, you know? So best for me just to stay away from that. Um, and, and add to that, I have a bit of an addictive personality, right? So the stuff, like I'm addicted to food, you know, that's not a joke, and you don't, please don't laugh, because so are some of you, right? So, um, but it's just, so I, I just have in my mind that if I started drinking, that that would kind of trigger into that addictive personality, you know. So, um, I think pastors are just supposed to stay away from it completely, because pastors are on call 24/7. You know, and there's times, there's one time um, when somebody had been taken to the hospital in the middle of the night, and um, they called uh, the house phone, and nobody ever calls our house phone, except telemarketers or my mother-in-law, which is kind of the same thing. Um, And, uh, just kidding, and um, I was half asleep, and I answered the phone, and what they were saying to me was that they needed a ride from the hospital. But I was just, I was so tired, and I was like, oh, okay, that's nice, and I hung up on them. And Elisa said, I think they need a ride home from the hospital. And I'm like, no, that that can't be it, you know. And that was it. They needed a ride home from the hospital. So, um, like a good pastor, I had my wife go and get them from the hospital uh, because I was really tired. And that's without alcohol. Add alcohol to the equation. It's just its just not a good thing. its It's not a good thing. So... So that's what we have going on here, and that's why God feels the need to step in in verse 16 and, and just really begin speaking and saying, look it, I'm going to lay something down, because what you're laying down as a foundation isn't really working. Your foundation right now is pride, your foundation is drunkenness, and that's not a sturdy foundation. That's not a foundation that can be built on. So, so let's talk a little bit about this foundation. You can see right here in verse 16 that it's a foundation of stone, and specifically there in verse one, it says about, or excuse me, in verse 16 that it, it says about that stone first that it's a tried stone. Um, it means it's been tested. It means it's been put through whatever test they would put through back then to know that if we are going to have this as our foundation, if we're going to have this as our building block, it kind of needs to go through some uh, strength testing or whatever the case may be. So we don't have to worry about that. That's kind of the point. We don't have to worry about, man, you know, it's a stone foundation, but I really hope... That's what happened here at this church, actually. When this church was built in 1875, they built it on stone. Over here on this side of the sanctuary that gets more sun and has been drier over the years, this side of the sanctuary settled and sunk about an inch and a half, a little less than an inch and a half. But over here on this side of the sanctuary that doesn't get as much sun and the water tends to pool over here, even though it's stone, even though it's strong, even though it's holding us up right now, that side sunk almost four inches. And that's why the side you guys are sitting on has been ripped up way all the way to the back because they had to bring it back to a place where they could get it to be level. So sometimes you can have somebody say, oh, that's a rock-solid foundation. Maybe. Maybe not. Has it been tried? Has it been tested? See, this foundation, this stone that's being laid down, it's been tested. It's been tried, so we don't have to be concerned about that. It also tells us right there in verse 16, the second thing is that it is precious, that that stone that's being used for the foundation has value. It isn't worthless. It's not a stone that you would go uh, find in the back and say, hey, let's use that to support a church. It's going to be, you know, it's gonna be uh, granite from Concord, New Hampshire or, or something like that. It's going to have value. So it's been tried, and it has value, and that leads, as it says there in the middle of the verse, that leads to the foundation being sure. That leads to the foundation being, being strong. It's been through the test. It has value to it. It's not just like, ah, let's throw something in there and hope it holds. No. It, it has value, and it has, it, has, um, it has value, and also it's been tried, and it's been tested. Uh, Turn with me for a moment to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7, Matthew's the first gospel, of course. Take the time to find your way there to Matthew chapter 7. Um, This will be a familiar passage to you. Um, I'll even sing you a little song as you're finding Matthew 7. It says, uh, the wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock, And the rains came tumbling down. Anybody remember that? The rains came down and the floods came up. The rains came down and the floods came up. The rains came down and the floods came up. And the house on the rock stood firm. The foolish man built his house upon the sand, The foolish man built his house upon the sand. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. And the rains came tumbling down, The rains came down and the floods came up. The rains came down and the floods came up. The rains came down and the floods came up. And the house on the sand went flat. Or splat. Or down. Or something. You got it, George. Right. Matthew 7, that's where we find that. It's in verse 24. It says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will Now, Jesus didn't sing it, but he certainly explained it even better than the song. And what he's letting us know is this. Whether you're wise or foolish, the rain falls and the floods come. Have you ever noticed that in life? That sometimes there's storms of life. And that storm is not based on whether you're wise or foolish. It's just based on sometimes there's storms in life. And that's why having a foundation is important. That's why having a good foundation is important. That's why thinking about, okay, what is the basis for this? What, what is going to be built on top of this? And not to think, oh, well, that doesn't really matter. It matters. It matters. And it matters, according to 20, Isaiah 28:16 that our foundation has been tested that our, and our foundation has value to us. And we are, by Jesus, we are counted wise if we listen to his words, if we do what his word says to do, It gives us a foundation on a rock so that when the rains come and when the floods rise, we have a foundation that's going to hold. Now, Paul picks up on the same idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, but expands on it a little bit more for us. So after Matthew, there's like five books or so, and then you get to 1 Corinthians. So turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. While you're finding 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I'll sing you another song. Don't build your house on a sandy land. Don't build it too near the shore. Though it might be kind of nice, you will have to build it twice, and you'll have to build your house once more. I don't know where that's from, but I had all kinds of weird songs popping in my head all week long. So here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and uh, this time we're going to pick up in Verse 10. 1 Corinthians 3:10. Watch how Paul. How, watch this connection to Matthew 7, but then more understanding for us. 1 Corinthians 3:10. Paul says, "According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it." See that's that's. See what he calls himself there? A wise master builder. That, that's not an issue of pride. That's an issue of Paul saying, look I'm taking what Jesus has said and doing it and laying a foundation. But Paul also understands something, and he just told us there in verse 10 that uh, he he says, uh, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. The purpose of the foundation is that other people are going to build on it. I mean, you and I have probably seen uh, people who had every intention of building a house and so they had a foundation poured, but then they ran out of money or something happened in their lives, and now just the foundation sits there? It was, their house wasn't meant to look like that. We understand that, right? They didn't plan on living in a cement hole in the ground. They they planned on building on the foundation that was laid. And that's what Paul is saying. He says, I may be a master builder, I may be wise because I'm paying attention to what my foundation is, but I also understand that others are going to come and build on that foundation. It's not just a foundation that is meant to sit by itself. He says at the end of verse 10, it's like a word of warning. He said, let each one take heed how he builds on it. Not what he builds on it, but how? You can pour a foundation and what goes up after that could look like a skyscraper. You can pour a foundation and what goes on after that could look like a colonial house. Uh, You can pour a foundation and what goes up after that could be a church or a grocery store or whatever the case may be. It's not about what gets built on it, it. It's about how that gets built on it. And so he says, watch and be careful how you build on the foundation. And then he says this in verse 11. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? That we don't have to wonder, okay, where am I going to get some stone that's been tried and tested where, where am i going to find something of value to lay as a foundation we're told that the foundation that paul is speaking about in 1 corinthians chapter 3 and the foundation that isaiah is speaking about in isaiah 28:16 is none other than jesus who's been tried literally tried right and tested the bible says he was tested in every way that you and i are tested except without sin So he was tried, he's tested, and does Jesus have some value as a foundation? Of course he does. Jesus, for us as a church, for us as Christians, is supposed to hold immense value. And He is the foundation that things are to be built on. Now, you can build differently after that. That's what it says in verse 12. But that foundation should only be Jesus. Look what it says in verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. I always picture that as a little bit of a different twist on the story of the three little pigs. You guys know that story of the three little pigs, and the bad guy in the story is, yeah, the wolf. But he's not just the wolf, he's the big bad wolf. That's right, right? And the story of the three little pigs is one of them builds his house out of out of uh, straw, right? And the wolf comes and is able to blow it down and the other one builds it. He goes running to the next pig, you know, wee, wee, wee all the way home. That's something different. And he gets to the next one and they're built out of sticks and the wolf, big bad wolf comes. He says, I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house down and the house gets blown to pieces and so they find safety only with the pig who is wise enough to build his house out of brick. And Paul is saying, look at." when your foundation is Jesus Christ, pay attention to how you build on that. Because there's elements that you could use, like wood and hay, and I think there's a third one he mentions there that would not be good ones, straw. Don't build with that. That's not going to bear any weight. And the storms of life are just going to blow those things down like the big bad wolf and the three little pigs. On the other hand, we also have other elements that we can build with, certainly gold and silver and precious stones. And those things, when they go through the fire, don't decrease in value, they increase in value. Gold becomes more pure. Stones become more more lovely from from that um, entire process. Silver becomes more pure as well. So it isn't a matter of what we're building on the foundation. It's a matter of how we're building on the foundation. What we're building, it may look a little bit different. Some of us may go for the straight and narrow reaching up to heaven and, and have that be an okay thing. Others of us may say, you know what? I like to spread out, and that's fine. But what's important is that Jesus Christ is our foundation for all of that. So that's the first question we really have to ask ourselves, right? As is, is I'm living a life of faith, as I'm, I'm walking in, in uh, faith with the Lord, what is my foundation? And second, how am I allowing God to build on that? What's being built on that? Is it stuff that's going to last? Is it stuff that's going to increase in value? Or is it going to depreciate as time goes by? So we have to ask ourselves, what is our foundation? Now I know, well, I'm sitting in church. Of course my foundation is Jesus. No, I'm not buying it. I know way too many people who call themselves Christians who don't have Jesus as a foundation. They just don't. I got a phone call this week from a man named Nelson. I knew I had heard his name before, but I couldn't exactly figure out why. And he started talking. He was a fast talker. You know when people are fast talkers, and it's like you're trying to figure out what they say, and they just, hey, I was just reading my Bible during lunchtime, and I came across these passages of Scripture, and since you're a Calvary Chapel pastor, and Calvary Chapels believe this, I'm wondering if you can answer this for me. And I felt like saying, Nelson, can you take a breath? Because I need to take a breath just from listening to you. And basically, he launches into this thing and he asks me he asks me this loaded um, question about hell, and and just starts throwing all of these scriptures at me. I, he's not even giving me time. This was a tip off. He's not even giving me time to look them up for myself in the Bible. And he's just I don't know who this guy is. He's calling from a blocked phone number and he's just throwing this out here. And finally, I remembered where I had heard of Nelson before. I'd gotten an email as a Calvary Chapel pastor from that went out to all of the Calvary Chapel senior pastors and it basically said watch out for a phone call from a man named Nelson. Isn't that funny? He's been calling Calvary Chapels all over the country pulling something off of the main Calvary Chapel website in in our beliefs and and saying that it doesn't hold water scripturally uh, scripturally and 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 The tip-off for me was when he wasn't giving me time to look up passages of scripture, and then when I started asking him, but what about this passage of scripture, he would just talk right over me. And not even, he didn't really want a dialogue, that's what I'm trying to say. Uh, Because Nelson is actually a Jehovah's Witness, who doesn't even believe in the same Jesus that we believe in. And he just wanted to run roughshod over me, and I, I don't know why, it was just my turn, I guess, from amongst all of the different pastors. And that's somebody who, who would say uh, th- that they're some form of a Christian, but their foundation isn't really Jesus Christ. And I use them maybe as a little bit of a silly example, but I know people this morning who are sitting in Baptist churches in Calvary chapels and assemblies of God churches and every other denomination who would say that they're Christians, but their foundation is not Jesus. It's something else. And that's why we have to not just assume, well, why are you even asking us? Of course our foundation is Jesus. Let's not assume that. Let's let's look at our own lives. Let's look at our own faith and say, okay, in my life lately, am I building on the foundation of Jesus Christ? Or did I start that way, building on the foundation of Jesus Christ, but now I've decided to put on an addition? And in the addition I'm putting on, I'm using a different foundation. I, I think that that is something that sometimes happens. Now, back to Isaiah chapter 28 verse 16, because here not only are we told that Jesus is our foundation, we're also introduced, as we've already said, to this stone that's being used. We've been told that it's a tried stone. We've been told that it's a precious stone. But I want you to look at (coughs) the third descriptive word used of the stone in verse 16. It's kind of Hidden in there a little bit, but not really once we see it. A tried stone, a precious cornerstone. That word corner is the other descriptive part of this. So not only are we dealing with the foundation, but we also now have to deal with a cornerstone. Can you guess what part of a building a cornerstone goes on? Out loud. The corner, yes, very good, very good. Yes, exactly. I'm clapping for you now mockingly like you did to me earlier, right? Um, It it goes on the corner. And the idea of the cornerstone, I looked this up um, just so I could read some kind of a uh, official definition. It says, cornerstone, an important quality or feature on, on which a particular thing depends or is based. An important quality or feature on which, I'll change it a little bit, everything else depends and is based. In other words, as important as it is to have a good foundation, if you lay that first stone on top of the foundation and it looks like this, your building's going to look like that too. So it's important that the, that the cornerstone be also tried and tested and valued and that kind of a thing. So it isn't just about Jesus being our foundation. It's actually also about Jesus being our cornerstone. See, it isn't, okay, Jesus, you're my foundation. I'm going to build from here. Got my hard hat, got my tools, my hammer, my saw, whatever, you know, and I'm going to build from here. It's no, no, no. Jesus, you're the foundation, and Jesus, you're the cornerstone. You're the first stone to be laid so that everything else in life, well, let's keep it with the building for a second. Everything else in the building is measured against that cornerstone. That make sense? It's very weird having you guys split like this, I just want to say. It's like two sides like this, very odd. I feel like I'm in one of those duck galleries. Where I go, ping, and I go, oh, dee, 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 <coughs> I don't know. I'm going to come over here for a little while. How are you guys doing today? All right? Good, good. I'm right-handed, so I tend to go that way. So um, uh, cornerstone, the importance of, of lining and, and bouncing everything off of that cornerstone. We have a good foundation. We we also need that good cornerstone. Now, no surprise, the writers in the New Testament kind of pick up on the same idea. And again, it's Paul who does it first. It's in Ephesians 2. Will you turn there with me? So just a little bit after where you were in 1 Corinthians uh, before, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm not sure I have a song to sing you this time, so you just have to... Precious cornerstone, sure foundation, you are faithful to the end. That's a worship song we sing sometimes, right? Okay, Ephesians chapter 2. Here's here's how Paul puts it in, um, let's see, verse 20. Now don't misunderstand the first part of this verse. It doesn't undo Isaiah 28 or 1 Corinthians 3. Ephesians 2.20 says this, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So what happens is this. Jesus is the foundation. And in the Old Testament, the prophets, and, and as we just read, Jesus is the cornerstone. And in the Old Testament, the prophets and what they were doing were to be in line with and measured against the cornerstone Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, it becomes the apostles who are held to that same standard. So when we read in Acts 2.42 that the early church continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, the breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. We don't have to get worried that somehow already by Acts chapter 2, verse 42, the church is going off the rails because they're not following Jesus' doctrine. They're following the apostles' doctrine. What's letting us know is this. The apostles were taking everything that they were doing and saying and lining it up with Jesus. So their doctrine was Jesus' doctrine. Now sadly today, sometimes what the church teaches, because that's what doctrine is, doesn't appear to have anything to do with Jesus, or very little. It's like we don't have that standard anymore, but we're supposed to, because what Ephesians 2 is talking about isn't a physical building. If you look back with me at verse 19, let's pick up the, the whole thing, and you'll see how you are in here, and I am in here. It says not talking about a physical building, is it? It's talking about us. It's talking about the church, meaning those who are in the church, not the church buildings. You can have church this morning, right? Calvary and Chapel in Rockland meets in an old Kmart. Uh, the Calvary Chapel that we went to in uh, Manassas, uh, Virginia or somewhere down there. They met in an old grocery store. You can meet anywhere and call it a church. But the church, as we all know, are the people who are inside of it, not the physical building. And that's what this is talking about here, that what's being built on the foundation of Jesus Christ isn't really a what, it's a who, and it's you and I. W- what's being held to the standard of the cornerstone as it's being built is, is you and I. Now, it's not just Paul who picks up on this in, first, in uh, Ephesians 2. Peter picks up on it as well in something he says in 1 Peter chapter 2. So turn there with me. That's almost all the way to the back of your Bibles in 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter two. We'll pick up in verse six. First Peter two six. Actually, let's back up to verse four, because this almost, not word for word, but idea for idea, echoes this part. Echoes what Paul just told us in chapter two. 1 Peter 2.4 says, Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. He's talking about the cornerstone, as we'll see. You also, verse 5, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So there it is again, beginning of verse 5. You and I are living stones being built on this foundation, being held to the standard of the cornerstone. And then it says in verse 6, Therefore it is also contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion. Does that sound familiar? That's Isaiah 28, 16. Behold, I lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. So Peter slips in a couple of words that we didn't read in Isaiah 28.16. And it's perfectly fine that he does that because he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit. And, and, and Peter quoting Isaiah 28:16 is just to help us understand that it wasn't, when Isaiah said it, it wasn't just about a new building with a new foundation and a new cornerstone. It was something bigger than that that God was doing. So look at, with me, um, it says, near the end of verse 6, it says, he who believes on him, I'm going to read it as Isaiah 28:16 has it, he who believes will by no means act hastily. That's what it says. Watch watch what Peter does differently. He who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. He who believes on him. It isn't just he who believes in a general way, but it's he who believes on the foundation of Jesus Christ, yes, but also on the cornerstone because Jesus is both. He is the foundation that gets laid for our faith, but He's also the cornerstone of our faith. He's holding everything else together. He's the first one to be uh, held in place, if you will. And everything we do and everything we say and everything we think as we live as Christians is to be held to the standard of Jesus Christ. And and we're to measure ourselves by Him. So, verse 7 of this chapter says this, Therefore, to you who believe, He is precious. Have you ever used that word of Jesus? Like, Jesus, you're so precious. Uh, There's not a lot of things that we go around and saying that are precious, right? Gollum from Lord of the Rings used that word a lot, right? My precious, you know, all the time. Jesus should be valued by those who believe in Jesus as the foundation and as the cornerstone. Look how he goes on to say now. He says, therefore, to you who believe he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So while there's the mention of the cornerstone again there, look at that because in your Bibles it might be offset a little bit and what it's letting us know is that Peter is again quoting from the Old Testament except this time he's not quoting from Isaiah 28.16. When he says the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, he's actually quoting from Psalm 118. So again, listen, Peter was not a learned man. You know what I mean by that? He wasn't educated. He was a fisherman. He liked to put his foot in his mouth. I don't know if he liked to do it, but he did it a lot, right? He said silly things at silly times. This is not Peter thinking, you know what? How can I combine Psalm 118 and Isaiah chapter 28? This is God breathing through Peter who has pen in hand. It's the Holy Spirit making these connections for us. And what I love about Peter saying here, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, is not just that it points us to Jesus being the cornerstone again. It's not even the first time that Peter has said this. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Excuse me, Acts chapter 4, not chapter 2. Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, I'll set a little bit of the backstory for you. Right after the Gospels, right? It's Acts. In Acts chapter 4... Oh, wow. Guess what I just found? That paper I was looking for earlier. It was in my pocket all along. How do you like that? In Acts chapter 4, the early church is getting going. Uh, Peter and John go out in Acts chapter 3, and they come across a lame man whose friends had been dumping him off at the temple every day so that he could beg. As they approached him in Acts chapter 3, it says that, that he looked at them and they looked at him. They made eye contact with each other. And he said, uh, they said to him, Silver and gold have I none. But I do, I'll paraphrase it a little bit, but, but what I do have I give unto you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he rose up and walked. And rather than being excited that a lame man who had been there for days and weeks and years was now healed, the religious people were ticked off. So in Acts chapter 4, they attempt to call, well, I guess they kind of do, they call Peter and John on the carpet for it. But Peter and John have the opportunity to respond. They have the opportunity um, to speak. And so Peter does. In verse 8 it says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and we won't read all of that there, but look at verse 9. If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. And then he takes the opportunity to present the gospel. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You see how First Peter 2.7 and here in Acts chapter 4, he says the exact same thing. He's quoting from Psalm 118 both times. But, but again, he's not an educated man. He didn't study this. He didn't have time before being dragged before the, the politicians or the religious people in Acts chapter 4 to put together his defense or a sermon or a presentation of the Gospel. It was just, there he is. And it fits with one of the things that Jesus would tell his disciples, which was this. When you get dragged before councils and government authorities and are questioned about you know, what, what God is doing or what you're doing in the name of Jesus, don't plan out what you're going to say. Instead, the Holy Spirit will give you the words in that moment. And no surprise, when the Holy Spirit gave Peter words in Acts chapter 4 in that moment, it was quoting Scripture. Scripture. Because the Holy Spirit, who's the author of Scripture, loves to use Scripture for for the different circumstances that we go through. Now I'll, we'll just go there. Turn turn back two two books to Luke, chapter twenty. Um, chapter twenty. And after you um, turn to Luke 20, here we go, I found it. Yeah, Luke 20, verse 17. Peter would have heard this, all right? Luke chapter 20, verse 17, this is speaking about Jesus. He just told them this uh, whole parable, but he aimed it at his detractors. He aimed it at the religious people. And you can see at the end of verse 16, the last two words, that, that's them, after Jesus asked them a question, they were like, certainly not. Just That's very British sounding. You know what I mean? Like I don't know what it would have been in Hebrew, but it would have been, it sounded different than that. But he's kind of going at it with them. But watch what he says, verse 17. Then he looked at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus is now quoting from where Peter had quoted from in Acts 4 and in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7. So, so yes, Peter would have heard that before, but, but it was the Holy Spirit that brought it to his memory. And, and, and the stone that the builders rejected is Jesus. The cornerstone is Jesus. The foundation is Jesus. You kind of get the point? It's kind of like all about Jesus, right? And that's what our walks are to be about. He's our foundation, but he's also our, our cornerstone. And and then Jesus follows up, quoting Psalm 118, with with verse 18 of this chapter. Watch what he says. He says, for whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. When I first read that, I thought, "There's, there's not a lot of good options there. Either I fall on the stone and I'm broken, or the stone falls on me and I'm powder." I guess I'll take falling on the stone for broken for $100, please, Alex, you know? Um, instead of being ground... What? What? I, we don't want to be broken. I mean, we don't want to be ground to powder, right? Anyone signing up for that this week? No. But we definitely don't want to be broken, so what is this about? Well, from God's perspective, broken people are good things. From our perspective, when something breaks, we try to fix, 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 fix. But sometimes... From God's perspective, it's not until brokenness happens that his work can continue. I love, and I've got the time, so I'm going to use it. I, you're not eating till 1230, right? So if we go out there at 12, they'll be like, oh, what's going on? Um, I love the story of Gideon in the book of Judges. I love it for several reasons. I love it when God first shows up in his life because his country and his people have been so under attack and, and have their food stolen every time there's a harvest that he is, he is preparing wheat. He's threshing wheat, which means you throw it up in the air and let the wind blow the chaff and then the wheat falls back down. but he's doing it in a wine press. Have you ever seen people who get in a big giant thing, maybe about this high and they get in there with their bare feet it's kind of you know they start they start stepping on grapes you know and, and the grapes start let you know it's going to be the juice runs flowing it's going to become wine or whatever the case may be um, and sometimes the people doing it might get a splinter of their foot or something and they also let out a little wine and and um, anyway that was a really poor joke but but he's so so my point is this how high in the air can you throw wheat for the wind to catch it and not be seen if you're in a vat that's three feet high not very high. And into that, God steps into Gideon's life, and he says, Gideon, you mighty man of valor. And I honestly believe, though, it doesn't say it. In my mind's eye, the way it plays out is that Gideon looks around to see who it is that God could possibly be talking to. Because he's not a mighty man of valor. He doesn't feel like a mighty man of valor. He's hiding out from the Midianites and, and nothing. But God sees Gideon as the finished product. God knows that he's going to make Gideon a mighty man of valor. So we fast forward, fast forward, fast forward. It's time now for Gideon to lead an army against the Midianites. And, and that's the story, and I won't repeat the whole thing, or I'll try not to. That's the story where there's like uh, 30,000 right and uh, people for Gideon, and God whittles it down to 300. All right. After he gets it down to 300 that are going to be going against tens of thousands of Midianites, he then arms the 300 men that Gideon have. And this is the part that I like. When he arms the men that Gideon has, he tells them, I want you to take a torch in one hand, and you're going to put a clay pot over it, empty vessel, like we talked about last week. And in your other hand, see, they're going into battle, right? So the other hand has to be the sword hand, right? Or the bow and arrow hand. I'll I'll go with a torch in one hand, but I better have some kind of a weapon in the other. But in the other hand, God gives him trumpets. 300 men armed with torches and trumpets versus an army of tens of thousands. I'd be asking, how am I supposed to fight? Do I bite them? Right? Do I kick them? You you haven't given me anything to use. You've told me what to do with the trumpet. You told me when Gideon shouts to blow it, I could have figured that out on my own, but thank you very much. That's what you do with the trumpet. You blow into it and it makes a noise. But it was actually what was in his other hand that made the difference. Because when Gideon shouted and the people shouted and blew the trumpets, the other thing that they were supposed to do is to take their torches that were covered by the clay pots and slap them on the ground to break the clay pot so that the light would shine out. And when it did, the Midianites saw 300 lights, not just one. They saw 300 lights and assumed there was a way bigger army than what was actually there. And they turned on each other almost to a man killed one another, just started swinging with their own swords blindly simply because of that. And, and here's what I love about it. It was not until those clay pots were broken that the light burst forth. Now, you and I looked at that verse last week, from or referenced it at least, from either 1st or 2nd Corinthians <laughs> chapter 4, I think, that... that you and I have the power of God in earthen vessels so that it can't be about us, but it's about Him. But even though we would say, yep, we just are an earthen vessel, we want to keep our earthen vessels in one piece. We tend to be that way. We, we want to keep them together. We don't want to think about being smashed on the ground. We don't want to think about being broken. And how many of us, how many of us have things at home on a knickknack shelf or something that is turned just right So nobody notices that at one point it fell and broke and we kind of glued it back together or taped it or something, but we can hide it a little bit because we don't like when things are broken. But the light comes shining forth when the vessels are broken. And so there's something to be said for God using broken vessels, empty vessels waiting to be filled by the Lord, but also then broken vessels. And that's what Jesus is talking about when He says here in Luke chapter 20, verse 16, whoever falls on that stone will be broken. If you fall on the cornerstone and you're falling in in worship, you're falling in reverence, you're falling in a healthy fear of the Lord, you're falling on that cornerstone, you're going to be broken. But it's okay. Because God works through broken people. His light shines forth more so when we're broken than when we have it all together. Do you have it all together? I hope you don't think you do. I don't either. I hate days when I figure out my day and how it's going to run or how it's supposed to run, and I've got it all together, and then it all falls apart. I hate those days. But God gives us those days to say, look at You don't have it all together, Don. You don't have it all together. You don't even have it mostly together. You kind of have maybe one thing together. I'll give you that, God might say, you know? But willing to fall on the stone and be broken. Back to Isaiah 28, 16, because I told you we were going to end there. What is our foundation? Let's not assume the answer. Are we measuring ourselves to the cornerstone who is Jesus Christ? Are we willing to be broken by the cornerstone? And here's the last thing. In Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, I'll read the whole thing again, but it's the very last phrase we focus on. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. That's the phrase that whether it was Peter um, or Paul, I think, does it in Romans chapter 9 maybe as well, that gets translated in the New Testament, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Here, the way that Isaiah puts it, whoever believes will not act hastily. The idea is this. The idea is when you know what your foundation is, and you know who your cornerstone is, you're not going to panic. You're not going to be hurried. And you know what often accompanies, I don't know about in your life, but you know what often accompanies hurry in my life? A word that rhymes with it. Worry. Hurry and worry sometimes go together in my life. So what Isaiah is saying is this. If Christ is your foundation, you don't have to panic if you are living your life of faith, basing yourself off of Jesus Christ, the cornerstone rejected by men, but precious to those who believe, you don't have to worry. And you don't have to hurry. You don't have to be shaken. You don't have to panic. Yeah, but the rains will fall and the floods will rise. Yes, they will. And you don't have to act hastily. You don't have to be hurried. You don't need to panic. You have a tried, true, tested foundation and a valuable cornerstone. Rest on him. Rest in him. Don't panic when life gets hard. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this morning, there are probably some of us in this room who have plenty in our lives to be worried about right now. And sometimes that worry causes us to hurry, buzz around, running here and there, trying to take care of things, trying to make things just so, because we don't want anything falling apart. We don't want anything to be broken. All the, all the meantime, Lord, you're trying to break us. So, Lord, may we today be willing to fall on the precious cornerstone. May we today be willing to, to visit whether or not our walks of faith are being based off of that precious cornerstone. Whether the foundation that either others are building on in our lives or that we are building on in our lives is Jesus Christ or has it become something else. And Lord, if we are going through difficult days, trying time, Would you help us when we've come back to where our foundation is firm? When we've come back to where our cornerstone is in place and rock steady? Would you just help us not to panic? Would you help us not to to worry and to freak out about the things we see happening in our world or the things that are happening in our individual lives? May you be to us precious cornerstone and a firm foundation. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.